Alright, this is Steve Hodges here for, I guess this would be my third episode of my nascent podcast, and I uh, have the honor of speaking with Dr. Robert Collins from uh, Soling Solutions. Uh, we've been talking, uh, welcome Dr. Collins, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Steve, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. We've been uh, cross paths, I think, probably way back, way back, maybe five, six years now. Um, there's not many people that are in this um, field of study, right. I guess. Right, and uh, we both kind of agree on a basic approach, uh, which uh, seems to be at odds with uh, many practitioners out there. Yeah, it's interesting. So to, just for our uh, listeners that aren't up to speed, you know, I, I'm a urologist by training, um, so started in this field mostly by looking at urine, urinary incontinence or urinary accidents, daytime wedding, nighttime wedding, and then kind of backed into the encapresis field just because it's related, and you are a psychologist by training, correct? Correct, and we kind of followed the same path. I started off with research on the bedwetting alarm, so I was concerned about urinary uh, dysfunction, uh, but especially in, in sleep. And uh, then I found that uh, encopresis soiling was much more distressing and created much more anxiety uh, and conflict for for parents and the children. That's interesting. So you started in with bedwetting. How long ago was that, do you think? Oh, a long time ago. It was uh, during a practicum in a psychology clinic at Indiana University. We had a um, mid-twenties graduate student female show up that was anticipating getting married, uh, but she was a bedwetter. And uh, bless her uh, fiance, he agreed to go ahead with the marriage, but she really wanted that to get cleared up. Uh, and so I had read about the bedwetting alarm, and uh, I proposed that we use that as a basis for for treating her issue um, so I've always had a, an approach that emphasizes you deal with the presenting problem you don't go hunting back in the distant past for uh, childhood conflicts or such as a cause because by the time you see them years or months later they're, they're chronic disorders, and the original causes are probably no longer relevant. So I pretty much treat uh, problems as they exist, um, especially if they've existed for a long time. That's so interesting. I don't, I don't think I knew that. So you've had success with the bedwetting alarm. You know, I still use the alarm sometimes, too. It's just um, it's kind of an ancillary um, therapy for my, for my practice. Um, so you had some success with alarm, I imagine, and then you, how did you go from the bedwetting into encapresis? This is just part of your practice seeing these patients, or? Well, um, let me comment on the bedwetting alarm a little. It's, I think a lot of modern parents, especially when both are working, uh, that compliance with setting up the bedwetting alarm, interrupting their sleep, and uh, arousing the child is much more difficult today and uh, also maybe the parental tolerance for what they have to do to uh, make the bedwetting alarm successful uh, is is uh, more problematic um, but anyway when 
uh, I started, I got interested in bedwetting, uh, and I wrote an, uh, a manual on it back in 1998, so we're talking 20 years ago, and I got on the internet at that same time. Um, I found that uh, often encopresis was an issue and that it caused a lot more distress and anxiety and conflict for the children and parents. And so I started focusing much more on encopresis. Were you finding the encopresis in the bedwetting children or is this just in other children in general? I came slowly aware of it and really with the emergence of your book, uh, it's no accident. Uh, and the relationship you found through um, your uh, uh, medical hero, uh, O'Regan, uh, that um, that uh, I I had to pay more attention to encopresis even as uh, daytime bladder accidents were uh, occurring and were significant. So. Uh, again, that persuaded me that I better focus on encopresis. That is, that's that's awesome. It all it all kind of we all ended up in the same spot. It's with with different journeys, and so I definitely think we can complement one another because I I have a I think my strength would be like maybe bladder and colon physiology just because of my background. But the one thing that I feel like maybe don't do as well is the psychology aspect. So. So I've had – so the way I see it, there's basically three people you know, dealing with this problem present, presently, right? Uh, me, you, and maybe Dr. Dom. And I've uh, – yeah. and so how would, you, how would you describe your philosophy for treating encopresis? Let's start with soiling solutions first of all. How, how did you develop this philosophy and what is it? Well, I, I'm primarily from a psychological behavioral – Background. So I'm very interested in apply learning theory for uh, many of the problems that I encountered in my uh, private clinical practice and then increasingly for uh, bedwetting with the alarm, which is a conditioning device, uh, and for uh, encopresis. Uh, and I see the uh, issue uh, as uh, the children forming a a habit of holding and that they, the solution is to develop a new relationship between when they feel voiding urges um, to uh, find a, a, a place to go uh, but in our culture that means the bathroom and sitting on the, the stool uh, and uh, and voiding, but they can't. Uh, they 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 form such a strong habit uh, that they have difficulty breaking it. So I agree with the idea of um, getting them to void successfully and getting the I would call it biomechanical that you would get the uh, function of successful. Uh, voiding going uh, and get the colon uh, and the, the colon in particular back to a normal size so that it's more capable but then you have the habit you have the, the nervous system 
you have the brain uh, neurology that is still in uh, a chronic hold, fight going, uh, and uh, somehow you have to get the children to successfully void on the toilet stool uh, when they feel the urges instead of sitting on the toilet stool and clamping up. And so that's a habit, a cramping up habit. And um, I find that using um, the suppositories and uh, enemas that uh, they, when, and you have very short sits that when they sit and they go, they sit and they go, they sit and they go, that over time, the going habit takes over from the holding habit. That, yeah, that's very insightful. You know, I, I think when I do see failures from, you know, because I, I always, early on I was always of the opinion that if you just got the colon empty and restored its normal size that nature would take its course. But there, I have seen kids, and I had a mom, a real insightful mom, almost compare it to like nail biting or you know, any other kind of yes. tick, that this holding behavior is so ingrained you somehow have to break it. And again... I don't have a psychology background, but so the what you are trying to do is have them have the urge to defecate at a known time so that then they could respond to it in a known manner, which is defecating instead of holding it, and then they develop a new pattern of going when they feel it. Is that kind of a synopsis of it? That's, that's a synopsis, and it's important that it be a short sit time. Uh, the mistake, I think, too many physicians make today is they require this kid to sit for 10 or 20 minutes. Well, if they're sitting that long and they're not going, uh, that is an eternity for a kid, and they would rather be doing other things. And besides that, they're failing. They, they yeah. can't break their habit. And so I require just short sits, two or three minutes, and then uh, if they don't go, they're, they're free to get up, but they have to return. They have to return after 10 or 15 minutes and try again, again for just two or three minutes. And even two or three minutes is forever for really young children. Um, so uh, I try to bias uh, sits being successful instead of sits being failure. You know, we see that in the urinary incontinence field, you know, people will kind of the cookbook approach to treating urinary incontinence will be, you know, some Miralax here and some time voiding here and these time potty sits. If you think about it, if you, if these kids could go on demand and pee and empty when they wanted to, then fixing urinary incontinence would be as simple as sitting on the potty every hour, but it never seems to work because they will sit for whatever reason, they won't be able to initiate a void. They, they maybe, because, you know, if there's not an urge, I find these kids have a hard time starting, uh, just relaxing the pelvic floor without the urge. And so I hear every day families where they sat a kid on the toilet for 15, 30 minutes to pee. They never peed, got up, and then peed on themselves. And it drives parents crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In those instances, they're much better to try two or three minutes and then release them and then back 15 minutes later and another two or three minutes so that that the child uh, doesn't perceive this uh, as uh, a, a uh, impossible kind of demand especially when they don't feel the sensation yeah it's so hard you know as adults i think we take it for granted that we can just kind of go 
try to pee or poop on demand, you know, because we know how and that we can. But for kids, <laughs> I don't think they can. And That's so that, right. that yeah, that, that ties me into another. So do you – what? It, a couple of questions come to mind. One is like the most severe withholders, right? These kids that would just rather and – and you get into a big field there, right? Where is it? Is it just a, a habit of withholding? Is there a fear? Is there a school issue? Like – what if what's your been experienced in terms of dealing with the severe withholders and all the pitfalls and kind of solutions to kind of encourage kids to go when they feel the urge? Well, I think you had a great insight with the uh, It's No Accident book and your mention of school laboratories and the uh, smells and uh, the presence of other people in the uh, laboratory and how in, that inhibits relaxing and going. You know, I toilet totally train my cat and uh, cats have to find a litter box and go. Uh, and, and, and they'll go much easier in your home, bathroom, uh, when litter is available. And even if it's available only when they get up on the uh, toilet stool. Um, so kids have to feel safe uh, and, um, and confident that they can go and that this is not a demand to uh, sit forever. Uh, so I think, um, you know, everything I do in my program is the bias uh, for success. And uh, when, you, when you deal with it, instead of looking for all the causes that people look for, you know, uh, what psychological uh, idea does a child hold that uh, going they might fall into a toilet bowl, you know, they flush a toilet and it's a huge, loud, roaring um, suck hole, uh, then uh, kids may be frightened of sitting on the toilet, um, especially if they're quite young. Uh, but once you have success, uh, as a psychologist, what I find, you treat the immediate problem, the habit, and everything flowers. I mean, other symptoms, their family conflict, uh, everything just blossoms. The kid is, is really uh, uh, back to, you know, the original child or the child you, you hope for. So I think sometimes you look too much for causes and you have to really just deal with what's going on now and bias towards success. You know, and I really want to echo that because that that type of thinking that you're describing is what leads to blaming and like a lot of the abuse cases and and almost explaining away, you know, like so that the accidents, the accidents are accepted uh, as almost inevitable because this child has some issue and – and you know right. the pa parents say the child's lazy like you know for for severe cases of bladder dysfunction i will do um a botox inject inf injection in the operating room and it's remarkably effective because it pretty much you know paralyzes a certain number of the muscle fibers in the bladder and so the most amazing thing is that pre-botox you have this kid that everyone swears you know waits too long to go pee you know and can't stay dry and doesn't care if they're clean or not and then once the bladder's fixed they're they pee normally like anyone else would and it amazes yeah. me that once you give them normal physiology, they behave normally, just like nature would intend. 
Yeah, you're breaking a cycle that they've gotten into, and, and that action is a dramatic um, uh, reversal of, of the cycle of, of holding and, uh, and, and success. Is a kid conscious when you do that? No, we do it under anesthesia. I, I think they're okay. doing them sometimes, they're doing them uh, in adults uh, in the clinic, and they're actually developing a way to do it just with a catheter. You can, inj- you know, the interesting thing I'll tell you, and I'm going to be writing this up, is that these kids, when we inject the bladder with Botox, they will get improved um, defecation symptoms. So they'll require less laxatives. I can't figure it out. It's interesting. I don't know if it relaxes the pelvic floor or if it kind of. The nerves, you know, that run to the the rectum and the bladder, kind of in between each other there on the posterior wall of the bladder, so it may have something to do okay. with it. But it's very interesting, and that gets into another yeah. area, you know, because you weren't trained to prescribe, you know, bowel medications, and neither was I. You know, we were trained to prescribe the medicines to our own field, and so um, I've kind of learned, you know, on the side, you know, the best bowel programs, and I'm and I'm always looking for better and more effective you know, magic bullet to clean out the colon effectively. How did you develop your armamentarium of, of medications and what have you found that works the best in terms of initiating a bowel movement? Well, it was, <laughs> because I am a psychologist, it was really uh, difficult for me to come around to an idea of uh, how to get release and how to break the holding habit uh, and the advantage of suppositories and enemas was that you you flooded the child with voiding urges. So the very thing that these kids were not responding to, they were there. The cues were just massive, you know, the, the immediate. Uh, and then they couldn't resist, and uh, they would uh, release. Uh, and that's the advantage of enemas and uh, the suppository. So um, I uh, I uh, was well known for the bedwetting alarm, and so physicians began referring to me uh, for bedwetting. And then uh, often I found the uh, encopresis associated with it. And uh, so physicians start, and I had to think about, well, how can I de- deal with encopresis? Uh, and uh, that uh, enabled me to make contact with some area physicians, um, and, and curiously enough, uh, often colorectal surgeons, not so much the uh, uh, gastroenterologist. Yeah, for sure. And and so I. You know, I I learned uh, the the more effective uh, approaches, but I, then I still had to think of how to design uh, my program so that uh, it it would uh, work in in a learning theory way. And there was a psychologist uh, who subsequently became president of the American Psychological. Uh, association, Logan Wright, who actually had the idea of using suppositories and enemas, so a psychologist doing that encouraged me to kind of break the psychological restriction of doing something more medical, but, you know, but parents could do it, and they were over the counter, so in a sense, I could defer to uh, the pharmacist or to uh, off-the-shelf products, so that enabled me, uh, in part, to 
feel more comfortable in uh, using suppositories and enemas as a psychologist. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is um, I would, I'm, I totally agree that that um, overwhelming urge can overcome the holding behavior, you know, because you basically, you give them this huge input that they have to go poop or whatever. But I, you know, in the, in the couple kids, in the few kids that I've had that have been, I would say, the extreme holders and where I've had to, uh, let's say, we did enemas and the goal of the enema was to empty the colon thinking that we would empty it completely for 24 hours they were, they would therefore be dry and then they could just get another enema you know kind of take the whole defecation out of their hands when i've had these super withholders they would never get dry in enemas and it was so interesting to me this one case in particular i'll never forget it so we're doing enemas we're doing all sorts of super duper enemas and this kid is still withholding and still leaking i could not figure it out and then dom gave the kid six x lacs which i didn't even know was doable. Six X like sounds, you know, uh, cr- uh-huh. crazy. And then that overwhelming urge, whatever, just clicked something in that kid's brain through that process, and had them start self-initiating. And then once they start going, you know, like you said, everything fixes itself. Yeah, yeah. So I struggle yeah. with that. You know, how much, how much enema, how much, you know, um, X lacks, how much of uh, whatever, you know, because we all have to give consider safety as well. Um, so you, you kind of came around to the use of uh, X-lax or Senna, um, the vegetable laxative basis for X-lax, is that uh, by uh, using it, I, I use it as a booster. If, if I have a child who's not responding well and they're, they've been going on the program and going to an enema every day for three or four months, then I suggest adding a bit of Senna to uh, boost the power hour. You have the child take it you now eight hours or so before uh, the power hour, uh, the uh, before the enema or suppository, and then uh, they're kind of, I think, more ripe uh, to to void uh, when you do the uh, suppository or enema. Yeah, that that, and I think. We're probably all coming into the same. We're all meeting in the same place, which they these kids are going to need a combination of of, um, of therapies to get. You know, Miralax keeps the established poop soft, maybe, and then you need some stimulant as well. Your program, I know, is, is called Soiling Solutions. Most of the people on my website will know about it, um, and I know you have the soiling, the the guide, uh, the Clean Kids Manual that you sell, and we will put a link on it on the website. Is there any? And I don't want you to give it away, obviously. But is there any? Is could you give a synopsis of like the basis of, of what the Soiling Solutions program is, like the kind of an outline? Yes. Um, basically, it's like what I said. It is to bias success when you do sit. So why I insist on short sits, and then repeating if needed. Uh, and then uh, I also um, use what we call classical conditioning, Pavlovian uh, treatment or conditioning theory. Uh, And uh, that involves, uh, again, just repeated um, uh, and uh, gradual withdrawal of the powerful uh, uh, kind of liquid suppositories or enemas going back to a weaker, uh, I call it a primer, 
um, a weaker, uh, like a solid um, uh, X-lax or glycerin suppository. And then gradually the child's own internal sensations will trigger uh, his awareness to toilet and successfully release and go. So, so that was like the bedwetting alarm. You, you, uh, you, in effect, the child uh, in the nighttime responds when he starts wetting the bed. Uh, the uh, the alarm stops him midstream immediately, and uh, after a time, his own internal brain awareness uh, triggers uh, the. Uh, clamping down and that occurs before the buzzer goes off so eventually the the child uh, responds to uh, the urge to um, uh, go and sleep in the fog of sleep they they successfully take over that function themselves and that's what my treatment is about the child takes over the function themselves so in both situations there's a stimulus that you're providing that causes them to do the desired behavior, then eventually you remove the stimulus and the child does it on their own. Correct, correct. That, you know, just to, they, go ahead, sorry. They, 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 they beat the buzzer, they, they uh, yeah, it, it becomes more evident that they're, they're beginning to succeed. Yeah, the bed ring alarm is, we'll break into that, we'll change topic real quick just for, for or, cause since you brought that up, you know, that's why I think the failure rate is so high with bedwetting alarm again because of family commitment to it. I think a lot of families have a hard time, first of all, understanding why it would be helpful to have an alarm go off once the child is already wet, you know. Um, and also, a lot of families don't understand the difference between a bedwetting alarm with a sensor versus just an alarm that they set every few hours. You know how parents do. I'm sure you've you've seen. <laughs> right. Yeah, where they get up every two hours, and so. Um, most of these kids, in my experience, I'm sure yours as well, are sleeping through the alarm, and the alarm is going off, and the mom is or father is waking up and waking the child up themselves. Is that what you experience? Uh, yeah, and and they they the parents have to react immediately. They have to be the backup alarm, and the quicker they they get to the child and uh, um, make sure the ch- child is uh, beginning to arouse, and then they the parent can turn off the alarm. So that the child has some awareness that it's sounding and that something has happened, and then slowly they make the association of what is in fact happening that they just wet the bed. Yeah, we've always tried to push that the kid, you know, make sure the child is conscious, you know, because sometimes you can wake up and roll over and not even know anything happened. So make sure the child's awake. Right. Have them try to urinate actually, and maybe have the child turn off the alarm or the parent. But once the child is aware that they're, you know, that they need to go to the bathroom. Well, I don't emphasize that so much uh, that uh, I do want them to show some sign of arousal and if need be uh, more drastic arousal, shaking them, calling their name, calling a child's name or their nickname is the most powerful stimulus for arousal. And so calling their name, uh, and there is alarm that has that feature that recording of the parent's voice saying their name that helps them to arouse to that. that that's that's interesting. I, I did not know that. That's interesting. And then when you get to the stimulus for defecation, you know, we always struggle with how much are they getting out? Like, it was it an effective evacuation? You know, I wish I could 
uh, ultrasound or x-ray their bellies right afterwards to know it. I, I, I know. They are a black box. They're a black box, no question about it. Yeah, for sure, right? So you have like a an estimated measurement, or at least you try to do that, correct, in terms of output? Right, and, and I figure any output at all in uh, in the beginning is is helpful, and and may and and after the second or third or fourth uh, day, they they may increase their ability uh, uh, to relax and let it, everything come out. Um, but again, some of these kids it's so deeply held. Um, and uh, they, it, 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 you, you just have to, in my program, I sometimes insist, well, you can't get an x-ray every week, but you can, if, uh, if they don't go, uh, then uh, maybe every, once a week, willy-nilly, at any time, give an enema and see if there's anything extra in there. Just to let you know where you are, yeah, that makes sense. Right, right. Uh, my my wife is a lot, well, for a long time, a lot of HE league uh, leader for breast milk, and uh, mom's always worried, is my baby getting enough milk? Uh, well, you can, you have to go by the law of what goes in must come out, and you can kind of judge by what comes out. And, and parents kind of figure out what is the good amount for the child to um, evacuate. Um, if they go a day and they skip uh, uh, the power hour or the enema, then they should expect a lot more the next day. So parents slowly develop an idea of what is, is enough. You touched on something very important there, and so, you know, we have Let's go back to the beginning now when these kids are born, when these behaviors first develop. You know, how, how it's, it's all well and good that we try to treat these children, but it would be better if we, if we never had a new generation of kids that never developed these problems, right? And so when they're first born, you know, I think, you know, even in newborns, we see what we call dyskesia, where these children are straining to poop soft, you know, yeah. liquid poop, which is, is I, I've always explained it away in my head as, you know, the kid just... It feels different to poop out in the real world than whatever uh, than being in the uterus and comfortable environment. And then we have, you know, these kids in formula that may not poop for days and days at a time. And pediatricians are always explaining it away as um, as a normal, you know, just digestion. And then each phase of change of diet, you know, whether it's uh, getting a GI bug or rice cereal or or solid food or dairy, leads to a change in the consistency of the poop. And then a possibility for the learning of withholding what's the psychological perspective on that and are any any tricks to preventing that other than just keeping them on Miralax from day one it's a mystery to me it's a mystery to me dr hodges yeah. um I, I just it's it's uh, again uh, they're a black box uh, as to what's going on inside and uh, the brain uh, and uh uh, those neural connections is is a, a black box. It's it's uh, hard to figure that out. We just call them anal retentive, right? They'll be very orderly, <laughs> right? And they get older. And so, um, in 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 my in my in my teaching, I've always you know my kids, for example, it's interesting. I was so 
I had my antenna up for this problem when my kids were born. I was like, you know, I see this all the time. The last thing I'm going to have is a constipated child, you know. And so the moment the poop was getting consist- thick or something, I would I would add Miralax or whatever. And honestly, even I got fooled. I remember with my youngest, she, she was only six months old, and the other two had done fine with rice cereal. And she was passing little smears, and they were soft, so I was convinced that she was just having, you know, I, I explained it away. I was like, well, she's having small bowel movements because she's digesting well. And then one day she, you know, passed this huge eggplant size poop. And I was like, geez, how did I miss that? You know, and so if I can miss it, you know, what hope is there for humanity? You know, everyone's going to end up missing this. And I just think we have to have a, a discussion, you know, with pediatricians and families that, you know, we got to make keep track of when they're pooping and how it's feeling for them. And, and honestly, because I jumped on it and treated them pretty quickly, I've noticed this halo effect that they were kind of less concerned about pooping in public you know what i mean like at school and so forth they're much more likely to go because they've never developed the pattern of holding and i thought that i didn't expect that i don't know what your thoughts are on that uh i would agree with that Uh, you know what we're discovering is is the clinical case method is very very uh important here there's so much that we that we don't know and we run into these unique cases uh, and uh, and and uh, we as individual uh, professionals slowly catch on, and ideally we can teach others that uh, this kind of variability um, or cases uh, occur, and we can eventually figure out what the heck is going on. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we and we have a big. I don't know if you've experienced this at all or used this. We have um, a large component of the urologic approach to dysfunctional elimination, which is, you know, we just combine pooping and peeing in one big group, is um, pelvic floor kind of retraining or with biofeedback where this is controversial, but the, the children somehow, because they develop this holding behavior, then are unable to relax at all. You follow me? And yeah, I. Thanks. They call that dysnergia. Yeah. That, that they can't coordinate the external anal sphincter. They just tighten everything up down there, uh, and they can't isolate out the external anal sphincter and have that function independently and, uh, uh, you know, serve as a gate to release the poop. Have you used therapists, or do you find that when you give them the stimulants that the, they're able to relax? Um, I, I did, in fact, um, I did a lot of uh, a study, and I was a biofeedback practitioner for a time, uh, and uh, I do see that uh, as a valuable approach, and I know some of our parents independently, and typically it's physical therapists that are doing that these days. Yes. Uh, and uh, with their instruments, uh, the child... Uh, with dual ENG, uh, you know, a, a sensor placed near the uh, anal sphincter uh, and uh, uh, electrodes on the front, on the abdomen, detecting the other muscular activity, uh, the, vid- the visual displays and the auditory displays is the kid can see uh, and separate out uh, the muscles so, the, so that they can get the external anal sphincter to function uh, independently. 
um, control and relax, uh, tense and relax, tense and relax, independently of the abdominal muscles. And so they kind of learn um, to do that isolation, and, and that does seem to help. So I've had physical therapists out there who have used my program and uh, use it with uh, the biofeedback. Yeah, I think biofeedback is very important. There's two areas that I'm not sure about. One is that if you get the wrong kind of therapist, maybe one that's used to working with adults, you know, especially if you're treating a urinary incontinence, they'll come back to my office and say, you know, they were instructed to do Kegels, you know, which is the opposite. Oh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And so right. that's not helping. And then the other is, I, I think. If your rectum is all blown out, so dilated, so you're so impacted, and so, you know, like if, let's say, a healthy person is pooping, they will relax their external anal sphincter, and the rectum will squeeze, because that's how it works, and it'll empty. But if your rectum is so blown out that nothing happens when you relax your sphincter, because that muscle is just atonic, then maybe it's impossible for them to empty without squeezing their abdominal musculature, having a valsalva, and it's kind of this catch-22, like they can't valsalva, they can't poop unless they valsalva, but if they valsalva, they can't relax their sphincter. And so that's where the medications are so important to kind of boost that, I think. Yes, yeah, uh, I, I would see it the same way. So interesting. So I think, um, I, at 45 minutes, that's amazing. We could talk all day because it's an interesting topic and we don't have any of the, you know, we don't have all the answers. We have a lot of them, but we don't, you know, there's areas that we're adapting. I'm adapting every day, um, and I'm sure you are too. Is there anything that you would want me to know or the parents to know about this field um, that you feel is not really well understood or that you just want to emphasize? Um, yeah, I, I uh, feel that um, we, we have to make or help parents uh, to be more comfortable with notions of suppositories and enemas, and we have to get the word out to physicians. And you and I both encounter a lot of resistance. We get that, uh, I get feedback from parents that, that uh, their physician is horrified that they're using suppositories or enemas. Uh, and, and I'm not sure we, you and I, you know, can overcome that. I'm not in a position being, uh, you know, semi-retired psychologist uh, to teach. I stopped uh, seeing patients and I stopped teaching long ago. Um, but we've got to reach out and somehow get professionals to begin accepting that suppositories and enemas aren't child abuse that, and parents have got to come to become more comfortable in that they're not abusing their child by using suppositories or enemas. That's, and, yeah. And parents, get, parents get frightened when their kids, you know, kids can become real drama queens and kings uh, if, if you're trying to cut their hair or, you know, uh, brush their teeth or something like that. And in this it seems to have a much higher stake because you are inserting something into the body. Um, same with eye drops. No, that's a that's a great point, and that's a great perspective. And Dr. O'Regan faced that. You know, I think that he there was an editorial written against him as a some kind of 
pervert or deviant uh, when he first came up with this and and that is so important I, and and to to have other doctors support us would be great because uh, you right. you never want a mom hearing different stories about you know what and we know what good and well that Miralax is not going to fix this alone and and the one I hate making an analogy because I don't want to be flippant about it but if they considered these incontinence episodes a real medical condition or disease then it would be a no-brainer that you would use whatever would work and I use examples to people I think that might take it well that if your child had cancer and someone told you you do give them an enema they would get better you know you would never not give the enema that would be a no-brainer so and I don't mean to joke about cancer I'm just saying that if you're looking at bedwetting is not a medical condition or encapricious is not a medical condition then it might be hard to convince yourself to do an enema but if you realize it's a medical problem and the enema is the therapy then I think it's right. it's easier yeah same with insulin and diabetes exactly uh, it may be necessary to take those injections exactly and and it's all perspective and then when this like when the school doesn't allow a child to go to the bathroom I always tell the parents you know if your child had diabetes would your school allow them to have insulin I mean they need to be able to go to the bathroom so changing society's perspective like I, I think anybody that knows me knows I'm not the most mature guy in the world, but somehow I'm super mature about this topic, right? Because I can deal with pee and poop from a scientific perspective where most of the world just kind of loses it. Like I remember when my first paper on bedwetting and enemas came out, um, I thought it was a landmark paper, and and I, I just all the, all the comments I got made fun of the title because I used mega rectum, <laughs> and so uh, go figure. It's a tough. It's a tough field to uh, get people to discuss seriously. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and and I have a friend who uh, led the You Can Poop Too um, research, uh, NIH-sponsored uh, research. You Can Poop Too, which uh, uh, subsequently uh, went commercial. This was research done at the University of Virginia. In Charlottesville. They made a great video, right? I've seen that video. It's excellent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And his interest was in uh, seeing the internet as a medium for affecting uh, change in disorders like diabetes and uh, encopresis. That was his, the chief investigator's main interest. So, yeah, I'm always looking for novel, you know, the trick, right? The magic bullet, the silver bullet, whatever it is, to, to, to click the switch off in the child's brain or to or get the colon empty. And, and it's tough. It's, it's I think it's a combination of a lot of therapy. And, and every kid's different. Some kids respond to different therapies differently. So I, I do think it's a lot of trial and error. But if we can get the, the physicians out there and parents more comfortable with the idea of, uh, I call them bottom medications instead of the top-down medications, uh, that, that the bottom medications are as legitimate and effective, uh, and uh, in, in the case of sponsors and animus, they, they give the proper stimuli uh, to lead to uh, successful uh, bladder and bowel control. So. Um, if we can get that more cultural acceptance out there, and that's that's massive task. It's just massive. So maybe yeah. there will be more people like you and me out there fighting for this. Yeah, you know, I think you're um, 
your message board or your family kind of was very successful with that and you came up with the kind of the mama bear or which is the mom that's going to push her kid through the therapy just because she knows it's the best thing for the kid much like when when you have to give your kid antibiotic and they don't want to put it in their mouth or like you said eye drops or shoot anything cut their nails brush their teeth right yeah right and today's parents i don't know if you've seen this but i think today's parents uh, you know, they're to be complimented in the sense that they're much more democratic, uh, much more uh, conversational with their kids and try to explain things um, carefully and get them to buy into um, uh, doing what has to be done medically. But sometimes they, they do have to go a little beyond their comfort zone and administer the eye drops. Uh, or do the insulin, or there they have no question, uh, and in this case, accept uh, suppositories and enemas as a necessary treatment. Yeah, you nailed it, right? Because, again, that point where the insulin would not be debated. They were like, you know, you need this shot, you need it better, and I think if we could add to our evidence that, you know, these issues, bedwetting and caprices and so forth, are due to this problem, and this is the best therapy then I think everyone buy in. The problem is there's so much noise online that these problems are due to other kind of made up, you know, pick up, pick a problem, you know, sensory processing disorder or just, you know, some kind of imbalance of chi or whatever, you know, not to joke, but, and so it's, if since there's so much noise and they're not convinced, then it makes it so much harder to actually do the therapy. Yeah, there's a lot of, I call them rabbit trails out there, and, uh, you know, the parents go chasing off uh, for this or that promising diet uh, or magical approach. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of avoiding um, a, a, uh, an approach such as we're using because it does seem to be uh, more difficult and create more conflict with their child. And uh, often children will, uh, with a, a strong uh, parental uh, love and approach that we have to do this, it's, it's uh, necessary, uh, they, the child uh, might fight the first time or two, but then they typically surrender, they they give in, they, they discover relief that when they do poop, they all, oh, they feel great. The same when you pee and, and you whiz and you relieve the bladder pressure, they, they begin to discover this once, uh, you know, it's uh, more or less forced on them. But you know, and, and the children know the parents love them, they're not doing this just out of pure meanness uh, and, uh, and and parents are afraid to take that risk and uh, we have to help the parents to um, take the risk and be strong with their, their child uh, in, in terms of what's best for them. That's why I always, I always hope and pray that each child gets, sees improvement rapidly so the parent can see the fruits of their labor and you know we all know that some kids are just tough nuts to crack. They, they're they very full, their colon's very dilated, and a lot of things don't get them empty. And I hate for parents yeah. to think that they're doing this stuff for no point. And that's why I, I, I say, you know, if you don't see some progress in a certain time frame, you know, let's reevaluate because maybe what we're doing isn't working in terms of not that it wouldn't work, but maybe it's not getting the colon empty. And so 
because the moment they feel like they're doing this and not seeing progress, then they start going down the other rabbit trails or doubting themselves. And, and that's why I always try to uh, focus on real identifiable like you know x-rays that show back up of poop you know um stuff we can really hang our hats on that shows progress or lack of progress so we can modify as needed yeah seeing is believing that's a real advantage you have yeah for <laughs> over sure. me <laughs> the, that reminds me of what you said is my my youngest uh i don't want to tell my kids too much but needed us animal once and she just lost it right she just was you know it's what are you putting in my bottom? Don't, don't, don't. And the moment she was done pooping after it, she goes, thanks so much, Daddy. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and so I always try to remember that. But then the next day she was like, let's not do it again. So, it, you know, it, I think they do learn, though, that this is for the good and it does, does provide some improvement. And hopefully one day, you know, we'll find, you know, the perfect, the perfect enema that just kind of evacuates everything uh, completely. But, you know, when you have a floppy colon and a poorly relaxed sphincter, uh, it's tough to, you know, rotor-rooter all that out, and so it takes time and commitment. But I think if we can point them to the research and to the progress they see, um, either on x-ray or on, and clinically, then hopefully they can they can get some good buy-in. And the younger, the better. Yeah, for sure. The sooner you start, because these kids, I, I have seen, it's just, it's unbelievable. And, and again, um, getting them fixed and then keeping them regular right keeping them going discussing this again again the kids that are on these programs pooping becomes a topic of discussion that maybe isn't a discussion in other families so you can keep open ended you know you know you always make sure your child eats well you always make sure your child's getting exercise it's also important to make sure that they're eliminating and keeping track of that and being open about it uh and uh, and discussing when that becomes a problem right right well, this has been amazing. This is awesome. We have a, a, a good almost hour here of information. We might have to redo one because we're, we're catching up so much. I will hopefully get this this uh, podcast on iTunes soon. I'm just kind of doing the preliminary ones, getting it down packed. But I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. I will post this uh, today or tomorrow, and hopefully we'll all get some um, uh, good benefits from it. I know I learned a lot. Um, thanks again, Dr. Collins of Flowing Solutions, for taking time to discuss with us. You're very welcome, and I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, have a great day, buddy. Thanks. Yep, bye.